Okay, we'll try this again. Speaking of being exhausted, I think one of the most difficult, most challenging, most exhausting things in all of life is when we try to manage our life on our own. We modify our behavior to meet the expectations of other people. We manage our circumstances, trying to minimize stress and and maximize comfort, looking for that magical path of least resistance through life. We can manage our faith, fulfilling religious obligations within the midst of other life responsibilities. Managing life is kind of like trying to juggle while riding a unicycle, while being blindfolded, okay? It's exhausting. Constantly making adjustments, managing our circumstances, trying not to be distracted. But let me ask you something. What what if a life in Christ promised something different? In fact, what if managing our life is the exact opposite of what God wants us to? to do? What if being a Christian means that we surrender control? And when you hear that, does that cause you to slightly panic or breathe a sigh of relief? This morning, I want us to look at the life of someone who faced that dilemma, a woman who was managing her life until she met Jesus. And in that encounter, He invited her to something different. And what she experienced in that moment, that that truth that she learned from Christ would then transform her life. I want us to take a look at that very familiar story of the woman at the well. But I want us to look at it with a fresh set of eyes. And in order to help do that, I want you to put yourself in the story. I want you to see if what Jesus offered the woman might actually apply to you. That maybe, perhaps, you would be different leaving this morning than when you came in. That what he is offering her might be offered to you and what changed her might change you for the very same reasons. So let's pray to that end this morning. Lord, as we come to you, we make that request. That's our desire. We know, we believe, we say that your word is living and active and powerful. The same yesterday, today, and forever. You are always at work. And Lord, if that's true, and we claim that it is this morning, we pray that it would be true for us today. That your word, your truth, just like it did in this woman's life, would transform our own. So we come to you with open hearts, with open minds, and we ask you to do your work. We pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Let's look at this very familiar story beginning in verse 1. John chapter 4 verse 1. It says in verse 1, when therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus, uh, when therefore that the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. 
near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, John, as he begins this story, gives us some really important details. The first thing he says is that Jesus is leaving Judea to enter into Galilee. And the shortest distance between those two points would take you right through Samaria. But most pious Jews would not even consider that as an option. The the Jews and Samaritans avoided each other at all costs. They just simply did not associate with each other. And so most would go around Samaria, even though it was a longer route, in order to get to Galilee. But Jesus does not live by cultural norms. He sends his disciples to get some food and he travels alone straight through Samaria. And he comes to a place where Jacob's well is at. Now, you need to understand that this was a very uh, popular place for people to get water, supplies of water. And, And over the top of this well would have been what was called a capstone. It'd been about 18 inches high It had been about five feet wide with a hole in the center from which to draw water. So not only did it protect the well, but also was a good place to sit down, take a rest, like a little bench, a stone bench. And that's what Jesus did. He sat down to rest. And he notices while he's sitting that a woman is approaching uh, to draw water. But, But this encounter is unusual for a couple of reasons. First, it's noon. It's the heat of the day. Secondly, she's a woman traveling alone. Now, most women gathered water in the morning to avoid the heat. And they did so as a group in order to help each other. So clearly, this particular woman was avoiding other people. And for sure, she didn't expect to see another person, much less a Jewish man, sitting at the well when she arrived. Now, Culturally, when a Samaritan woman approached a Jewish man, the Jewish man would step away to give her space. And you need to understand that that was to protect his own purity, not to give her any sort of respect. But that's not what happened here. Not only does Jesus remain, but he asks her for a drink. The first would have been shocking for him to remain in her presence and actually carry on a conversation, treating her with dignity and respect. That's unusual to begin with. But then to ask her for a drink, that was appalling in that culture. Drinking from the same cup as a Samaritan woman was the epitome of defilement for a pious Jew. It would be like drinking water from a basin that someone used as a toilet. That's the way it was seen in that culture. Look at how it continues in verse 9. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew, the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. The woman recognizes how unusual this is, and so she's a little skeptical. And, and rightly so, because maybe this man would take advantage of her. Maybe he had ulterior motives, so she asked Jesus to explain his intent. And Jesus tells her, my intent is to give you living water. But she's confused because he has no bucket with which to draw water, and this is the only water supply for miles. And so she probably begins to think, well, how's this going to work if if, if he can't get water here, does he know of a, a secret supply somewhere? Is there a spring that no one else knows about? And if so, I'm interested. Because <laughs> then I wouldn't have to avoid all the people who come to this place. So she's at least interested in learning more. Listen to how Jesus continues in verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to her, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty and not come all the way here to draw water. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. At first, this is the best news that this woman has ever heard. In fact, she's thinking in her mind that Jesus has a private well. That means that she wouldn't have to endure all the shame and the guilt and the public humiliation of coming to a public place to draw water. It would completely change her circumstances, make her life so much easier. And maybe, just maybe, if she had this supply of water that Jesus is promising... She could somehow win the approval of those she's working so hard to avoid. So in that moment of hopeful anticipation, she tells Jesus, I want some of that water. See, this woman is weary from managing her life. She wants Jesus to take the struggle away. She needs relief from a burden that she's carrying every single day. So Jesus says to her, go, call your husband. Well, let's all talk together. And with those words, she instantly lost all hope. Because if she were to answer Jesus honestly, she'd be exposed. And if she were exposed, then clearly the deal would be off the table because there's no way that God would give blessings to someone who is a sinner like her. So look at verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you've said, well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one whom you now live with is not your husband this you have said truly. Now we under, understand that technically the woman doesn't blatantly lie. She just leaves out important information. <laughs> She's 
reverting back to her exhausting efforts to manage her life, manage expectations, find approval in the eyes of other people. In fact, she's willing to forfeit a promise of living water in order to hide her sin. But Jesus exposes her sin. And not just the sin of the situation that she's in at that moment. He exposes a pattern of sin in her life. Because the core issue is not as simple as infidelity. There's an issue underneath the issue. This woman has spent a lifetime trying to find approval and acceptance. This woman just wants to be loved. But it is an ongoing, unmet need in her life. Look at how he continues in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and your people, the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In some ways, this is a diversion. The woman really doesn't want to talk about her private life with Jesus. And because of that, we have something in common with her because very much of us, if not all of us, really don't want to talk about our public, our private life with anyone either. We would probably want to change the subject as well. All she knows is that Jesus is unlike anyone she has ever met. He's a righteous man. She calls him a prophet, which probably only magnifies the guilt and shame that she already feels. After all, as a woman, she would have been disregarded by most men in that culture. As a Samaritan, she would have been rejected by the Jews, of which Jesus was one. And as a sinner, she would have certainly been condemned by the righteous so to avoid all the discomfort, she shifts the conversation to the topic of worship because she realizes, she's quick to admit, she needs to be right with God, but she doesn't know where to begin. After all, where can she encounter the presence of God? And she enters into this ongoing debate for the Samaritans say that the presence of God is right there at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. The Jews say, no, the, the presence of God is in Jerusalem, in the temple. So if she wanted to get right with God, where would she go? And notice how Jesus validates her question. He treats her with dignity and respect. He explains that, that God is not isolated to a place, a, a certain location. In fact, he's available to anyone who humbly desires to know him. After all, worship is the result of a relationship. That's why Jesus says, you cannot worship that which you do not know. 
Worship is a response to the, the grace and mercy of God. It's the result of being fully known and fully loved. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ, Savior, Redeemer. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I think this woman longed for a Messiah because she knew she couldn't get there on her own. And for that reason, she was already a step in the right direction. The Messiah, she believed, was the one who would lead her to God. But right now, she is quick to admit she's completely lost. She doesn't know where to go. She doesn't know how to begin. She was buried under a weight of sin, overwhelmed by guilt and shame. She needed a Savior. And with that, Jesus said, I'm the one you're looking for. Your day of deliverance has come. I know all about you. I know every detail, and I have come to forgive you, not to condemn you. If you trust in me, I will lead you into a relationship that gives you new life. And with that, something remarkable takes place. Look at verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot, went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him, coming to Jesus. I want you to notice something really significant about what just took place here. This woman is no longer trying to manage her life. After experiencing the love of Christ being offered to her and the forgiveness of grace being extended to her, she no longer has to hide. She was fully known and yet fully loved and it has set her free to the point that she could go back to the city of people who had condemned her and tell them about what she had found in Christ. This woman is no longer trying to manage her life. She's free. She's free to live a transparent life before the condemning eyes of her community. Her great sin has become a testimony of God's great love. Jesus took her mess and turned it into her message. This woman no longer has to manage her life or worry about the opinions of other people because she has found the loving approval of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, let me go back to the question I asked you to consider in the beginning. Does what Jesus offered this woman apply to you? Like this woman, are you exhausted from trying to manage your life? Your marriage your family, your future. 
Do you modify your behavior in order to gain the approval of other people? Do you present yourself as someone who has it all together, but yet if you're honest with yourself, you know that on the inside, you're falling apart? How many of us hide our true selves because we believe if people really knew us, they would no longer accept us? I think a lot of people, including myself, believe that's true. That means what Jesus offers this woman does apply directly to you and to me. Because here's what's interesting about what takes place in this story. When she goes back in the city to, to tell her story, the people didn't reject her. Now, does that seem odd to you? I mean, she's an outcast in that community. They've given her no attention. She's avoiding them at all costs. And yet when she comes in to tell her story about what Jesus has done in her life, now everybody's listening. Why? Is it maybe because they've been hiding too? They listen because they long for the same freedom found in the grace and forgiveness of God. You see, encountering the saving love of Christ doesn't just change individuals. It transforms communities. It, it reshapes how we relate and share life with one another. Because if we live in the light of Christ's forgiveness and grace, we don't have to hide. We have the freedom. The freedom to live transparent lives. In fact, here's the key, and I want you to take this home and think about this, all right? Transformation does not take place without transparency. Think about it. Transformation in our lives does not take place without transparency. We cannot grow if we are unwilling to be honest with ourselves and with other people. Spiritual growth requires vulnerability, a willingness to admit failure, a desire for something better. That's exactly what we see in the story of this, of this Samaritan woman. And so the very same thing would apply to you and I. Like this woman. We need God to take our mess and turn it into our message. Choosing to, to surrender our life instead of trying to manage our life. Living in that daily dependence of an abiding walk with Jesus Christ. Now, wouldn't it be amazing if that's how we chose to live life every day? And if it were, how would your life look different? Would it change the conversations that you had with other people? Giving you the freedom to share your struggle instead of trying to carry the burden on your own? Inviting others to, to speak truth into your life? Truths that, that set you free from that burden of guilt and shame that we all tend to carry? In fact, I think it, if we live that way, it would ultimately reshape our whole identity. Because if our identity is found in the acceptance of Christ, we don't have to look to other people to find approval and worth. 
We don't have to rely on the success of, of our jobs, the success we have in school, the, the outcomes that we have in ministry, what happens in, with our marriage, our family. Instead, our life is defined by our life in Christ. So let me share with you something God has been doing in my life in recent weeks. I'm going to be vulnerable with you if I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable with others. So one of the things that I've recognized as we've gone through uh, regeneration together as a pilot group evaluating this ministry, it's asking us to kind of do an inventory. And one of the things that I've recognized as I've looked back on my life is that uh, the pattern of success that I had in the hospital probably wasn't healthy long term. And the reason is, is because that success was based on a merit-based system. And those expectations were very clear. If you do certain things, you get a certain award or reward for your work. And I'm the kind of guy that if you give me a checklist, I'm going to add boxes just to exceed your expectations, right? So it was a perfect setup for me to exceed expectations because I knew what you wanted me to do, and I would go over and beyond every single time. And I found my value and worth in meeting and exceeding expectations, and then I came to the church, and they took all my boxes away. <laughs> There's no merit-based system. There's no way for me to prove my ability that I'm doing a job, that I'm making a difference. And so because I'm inclined towards that idea, I just made up my own boxes. I thought, well, if, if I can help people through the, through the sermons I preach, through the counsel I give, then, then that'll help validate my value and worth for what God's called me to do. But here's what happened. <sighs> Marriages still failed. Lives were still crushed. And, and very often, I was devastated by those realities because I looked at situations that I was involved in. I thought, I failed. I couldn't fix it. I put my value and my worth and my ability to help other people. And when that didn't happen, I felt like I fell short. But here's the reality. I was looking for ways to prove my worth instead of looking to Christ to find my worth. I was looking for ways to prove my worth instead of looking to Christ to find my worth. I was just like the woman at the well. Looking to be satisfied, looking to find relief from my efforts to find value and worth in my ability to help other people, but I don't have that ability. If there's ever anything you hear that's significant in your life because of something I say from this pulpit, you need to know that that did not come from me. Because I do not possess the power to say anything that impacts the lives of other people apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. It is God who does the work. And so what I'm learning is that I don't find my value and worth in what I do for other people. I do, I find my value and worth in who I am in Christ and what he's called me to do. And so that if I can learn to be faithful, that's where I find my peace. Leave the results to God and trust in faithful obedience. 
So let me challenge us all as we begin this new year to live in the light of God's forgiveness and grace, to experience the freedom of transparent lives, no longer hiding sin, no longer trying to manage our life, but looking to Jesus together. Because here's the deal. I need him just as much, if not more, than you do. And we have that in common, and we need each other to share our lives openly with each other and confess together that we find our identity in who he is and what he's done, not who we are and what we've done. See the difference? And so let's encourage each other in that. With that, let me read to you uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. This is from the ESV. I like the way this is written, and this kind of closes up what I hope to communicate this morning. It says this. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. When he talks about perfect, he's, being, he's talking about, because he, what he said earlier, being conformed into the image of Christ. So not that I'm already arrived there, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, he's learning to live in the reality of his identity in Christ, finding his value and worth in what Christ accomplished, not what he must do. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. I haven't arrived, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straighting forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let me encourage you to press on. Let me encourage you to live transparent lives. Let me encourage you to be vulnerable knowing that transformation does not take place without transparency. That we need to, to live our lives in, in true, honest community with one another and before God and let him do his work in us. Amen. So as we close uh, this morning, this song is perfect uh, because it communicates to the heart of what God is calling us to and who he's called us to be. So if you would go ahead and stand and let's sing this song together. you to uh, do something this week when you go to the Lord in prayer I want you to picture the scene of the woman at the well I want you to imagine Jesus sitting on that capstone I want you to picture him inviting you to come close and I want you to have a conversation with him and listen to him speak life into your heart listen to him Share his love and acceptance and his forgiveness and grace. And, and just see if perhaps you might enter into that conversation walking away differently than when you came in, if you looked at it that way. One of the other things we failed to mention that I want you to know about, and, and I think this is appropriate in light of sometimes I think we can get so encumbered in our own little world because um, we're living in our own little world, and we need to serve the needs of others. Well, you know, we from time to time uh, try to help Lubbock Impact, which is a ministry that serves the needy in our community. And they had some people pull out at the last minute. So this next Wednesday, they will be serving folks um, in our community. No, a week from Wednesday. So you got plenty of time. 
But we uh, didn't mention it this morning. We want you to know about it. If you would let us know if you would be able to help out, then we can plan accordingly. But uh, oftentimes we feel better about our situation when we go care for the needs of someone else's. So let me encourage you to consider that. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for the time together as a family. Thank you for the privilege that we get to share life together. And so I do pray, Lord, that we would that we would protect that by sharing life with transparency, that we would be vulnerable with one another, that we would open our lives and invite you in to our circumstances. Father, thank you for the privilege of experiencing your forgiveness and grace. And I pray that we don't look to the situations that we're in to find our value and worth, but that we look to you and who we are given worth. And Lord, we trust in you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.